Here's something else. When you and Jack were little and wanted to know what made it rain, what made the telephone work, whom did you ask? Not Dad. He was at work. What I didn't learn about science in school, I had to dig out of the encyclopedia later to satisfy you. So you see, women need to know as much about science as some men do. Lady history made me smarter. So my dad and I were watching Jeopardy. And I can't tell you when this was, but Alex Trebek was in it. And also, I don't think the new season came out. But I digress. It's the final uh, question where you have to like write it down. And it's like this whole very awkwardly put question about like French history. And it was like, who did she, like she murdered X, Y, and Z, who is this? And my dad's like, Joan of Arc. And I was like, no, Charlotte Corday. And he goes, how did you know? And I was like, honestly, dad, this is like a 95% like balls to the wall guess. But I'm going to say Charlotte Corday. And it was Charlotte Corday. And I was just sitting there like, you loser. Because my dad, I think I spoke about this. I think it was with like Aaron that my dad, the way we would get like our allowance was through doing riddles and trivia questions. So he's still on that, like this whole- You still get allowance? No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. No, 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 I still, I don't get allowance, I wish. The way that we, like, we just spend the holidays was either playing code names, which is like a fun, fun board game. Everyone should just play it. And then doing crossword puzzles. New York Times comes out with these like questions from the news. Like it's 10, usually 10 questions. And for the new year, they did like 30 questions. So his thing will be like, everyone has to answer the New York Times and he won't give out the answers until we've all done it to see like, who's the smartest of the week. And I've only gone like the smartest of the week once. Nice. To be fair, they watch the news every day and I do not. I use like my like news app to get like notifications. And if I go on some sort of site that's how I get the news I'm awful no one like model after me but Jeopardy came in clutch just because of this podcast my dad was like oh so the podcast like is actually like helping education growth and I was like yes yes thank you he also said uh we have a cool logo I was like well oh shout out to Alexia Ibarra you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws so we've proven that the show is educational. Yes. We now can continue that claim. Yes. Good. Yes, we knew absolutely. the show was educational. Although, is it only educating us? Uh, I, I have faith. We have listeners. Hi, listeners. Hi, listeners. Hi, to listeners. be fair, we're kind of the primary, like, we can see our reactions to the podcast the most. True. Hey, listeners, are you there? It's me, Margaret. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. I'm not sure how she ended up always being first introduced. Lexi, Lexi, what's your favorite science? Oh, I should probably say like astrophysics or something because I'm currently interning at the Air and Space Museum, but that would be a lie because (laughs) my favorite science is probably like earth science, environmental science would be my real favorite science. That means next up is Haley. Haley, what's your least favorite science? Physics. 
<laughs> Hardcore physics. I really wanted you to say astrophysics. I was about to, but like, I will forever say physics just because I have a really hard time with numbers and letters being in the same math groups. And I'm Alana, and as a child, I went to science camp for upwards of five years. Okay, so my question is, did y'all ever learn about like the history of science in class? Because I don't remember, especially I was thinking about this for 20th century, like STEM women, because that's our theme. And I realized that like I conceptually like didn't realize like what happened in the 20th century, even though I know it's like the 1900s, that's the 20th century. But realizing that like my history class didn't really go through that. Like I had no concept of like people from the 20th century doing impacts of science. We didn't Besides, learn about like, it in history class. We learned about it in science class. We yeah. And my science it. class, I can't pull from it. I can't. Had, I forget who the author is, but I met him at a politics and prose event. When I was in my 10th grade uh, chemistry class, we had reading from a book called The Disappearing Spoon, which was like the discovery, the history of the discovery of a bunch of elements, which was really cool. And so that was like kind of our history of science thing. That was fun. Also, Crash Course uh, yes, recently did a it. history of science. Yes. So like Crash Course, oh, Hank and John Green, hello. Hello. Hank? It would have been an episode Hank? without a Green Brothers reference. <laughs> I truly was trying to like figure out a way that I wouldn't bring them up with this question. I literally was like, you said history of science. But I was like, Crash Course, Crash Course, Crash Course. But that's how I got into like not just like forensics and like history of like science and history, but they were the ones that made like science fun for me in high school. And then I got hooked on their history. And then it was college where it was like, you can study history, medicine and bones. Congrats, Haley, here it is. But like in my high school curriculum, nothing like 20th century history and or science was like, science was not a thing. We just were still learning basic cells. Like I just remember every year come January, we were fucking learning what a cell was. And it's like, okay, took, mitochondria. Yeah. biological science every year in school? I don't know why, but like at least two years in high school because I was in like the intro to bio and then chemistry, even we talked about like cells because it was biochemistry as a unit. And then I took AP bio junior year. And then for forensics, she brought up cells because of like blood cells I mean, and everything. Cells She's are like, important. Do you yeah, cells are important? Do you remember Punnett squares? Yeah, yes. I love Punnett Those squares. are my favorite. Genetic I... science is actually my favorite science. And it's my mom's favorite science. My mom is actually a biology major. Low um, key. Because she loved Punnett squares. <laughs> uh I thought like something was wrong with me. Like I had a terrible genetic mutation because I could not tell the difference between a capital P and a lowercase P. Is astronomy a significantly more inviting field for women today than it was 30 years ago? Yes, I believe it is, and I believe it's getting better all the time. We are becoming more conscious of the differences between men and women, the different ways they work, and the contribution of women is becoming more and more recognized. It's still got a bit to go, but it's coming along very nicely. On July 15, 1943, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell was born near Lurgan, Northern Ireland. 
As a young girl, she encountered astronomy through her father's extensive book collection. Her family, who knew educating girls was important, encouraged her to explore her interest in the subject. She received support in her studies from the staff of the Armagh Observatory, which was near her home. When Jocelyn was attending preparatory school, only boys were permitted to study science. In a TEDx talk from 2013, Jocelyn recounted being separated from her male peers and assuming it was for physical education, but it turned out the girls were being sent to the home economics class while the boys were being sent to science class. So of course she went home and told her parents. And her parents, who, as I mentioned before, believed girls should be educated just like boys, were angry to hear that the school did not allow girls to participate in the science class. So along with parents of two other girls at the school, Jocelyn's parents fought for her right to study science. The three girls were moved into the science class, but being the only girls in the class was not easy. The teacher kept a close eye on the girls, so it was hard for them to overcome being the only girls in that class. But Jocelyn received the highest score on her science final at the end of that term. So she, she did it, she passed all the boys, she got the highest score despite being disadvantaged by being one of the only girls and by them trying to keep her out of that class. Jocelyn went on to study at the University of Glasgow where she earned a degree in physics. She graduated in 1965 and went on to pursue her doctorate at Cambridge. Jocelyn worked with her advisor, Anthony Hewish, to study the mysteries of space. And she assisted in the construction of a radio telescope, which would be used to track quasars, which are large celestial bodies. And there's like a lot more science that makes them, it's, it's a deep science thing, um, deep astrophysics. Again, astrophysics is complicated and too big brain for me, but it, they're things in space. And when the telescope was ready to operate, Jocelyn was assigned to operate it and analyze the results it produced. And this was like way before computers as we know them today. So the telescope actually printed its results out on a big chart, and then she would have to look at the chart as it was printing out and analyze it that way. Jocelyn began to notice strange results on the charts produced by the telescope, which were faster than those typical of the quasars. And Jocelyn did not know it yet, but she discovered the first evidence of pulsars, highly magnetized rotating compact stars, which are different than the previously mentioned celestial bodies. At first, Jocelyn and her advisor were suspicious that the signals may have been signs of alien life, so they nicknamed them Little Green Men signals. A year later, her findings were published in an academic journal. As scientists around the world began to investigate the signals further, they were able to identify them as coming from the stars that I mentioned. And the term pulsar was applied to this type of signal. The press, upon finding out that the discovery had been made by an attractive young female graduate student, pounced on the story, of course. But instead of asking her about her scientific studies and the research she was doing, they pestered her with questions about her appearance, like, what's your waist size? So we, we love that. <laughs> In 1968, Jocelyn earned her doctorate. That same year, she was married and unfortunately spent much of her marriage focused on her husband's career rather than her own, moving place to place as he moved place to place. In 1974, her advisor was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for Jocelyn's contributions to the discovery of pulsars. Alana is raging in the background. After her marriage ended and her son had grown up and gone off to live on his own, she went back to pursuing her own passions. She went on to teach with the goal of making science welcoming and accessible to all students, regardless of gender, class, or race. She became a professor at The Open University, a non-traditional college that allows students to take courses at their own pace, and she was appointed as the chair of physics. Her appointment made her one of the only two female physics professors in the United Kingdom, so she joked that they had doubled the number of physics professors that were women in the country. So that's a little sad, but you know, 
what if? At least there's two. In 1999, Jocelyn was interviewed for NASA's Star Child program, which I believe is now defunct, but it was an educational program in the 90s. And you can hear some great audio clips of her answering interview questions on the Star Child website, which I will link in the show notes. And Jocelyn has also given several TED and TEDx talks, one of which is about women in science and what it's like to be a woman in science. And I used it as a source, so that'll also be linked in the show notes. You can find that there if you're interested in the further learning. And I will leave you with a quote from her 2013 TED talk, which I thought really summed up her experience. Those of us who've been early in the field have often had to play the male game. And I hate to think what a lifetime of doing that has actually done to me. She should have won the Nobel Prize, but they gave it to the guy who was her advisor instead, even though she actually made all the discoveries and published the paper. And her accent's adorable. Like, just watch her. She's so cute. Is she still alive? Yes, she's 77. I'm not good at math. She'll be 78 this year. She's a cancer. You didn't point that out. That's your thing. Concepcion Mendizabal Mendoza. I definitely pronounced her middle name incorrectly. I am so sorry. The Z A with un acento on top of the A always messes me up for some reason. My little lisp comes back. But Concepcion is how I'm going to refer to her. That actually I think means conception in Spanish. So like that's fun. Here's my little side note for this. My Spanish is declining because my mom is Cuban. Therefore, my Spanish came from my grandparents. So when they died, I never had that continuous, we talk every single week, every, sometimes like every single day, and I'd be speaking Spanish. So in those like six years, I've not spoken Spanish. I've read it and translated it for various projects. However, pronunciation is difficult, apparently. And that also comes in with our gal coming from Mexico City. A lot of like the publications and references are coming from Mexico. So it took me like 10 plus hours because then I was like trying to see what resource was a blog or what resource was like a actual resource. And then I found some YouTubes and some podcasts. But again, don't stop researching someone, even if they come from a different country and you have a hard time like researching. It was still fun. I knew her from like a book of like STEM. She's an engineer. We'll get into it. Don't worry. Just sit back and relax. It was fun reading in Spanish, honestly. My Google Translate kept popping up, but some of the Google Translates for like the scientific terms were just no bueno. And also with how they like conjugated her name of being conception, didn't look great sometimes, but that's Google Translate's problem. So her being an engineer is rad in itself, but she's Mexico's first female to earn a civil engineering degree. So snaps for that. Ahora abramos nuestro libro de historia. I practiced that five times in the mirror, even though I knew how to say all those, Lexi's cracking up. I just wanted to do a good job. I have a big fear about speaking Spanish, even though I'm technically fluent. It made me smile. I thought that was cute. So Concepcion, with her upbringing, it was written in the stars, if you will, because she was the daughter of the famous engineer Joaquin de Mendiz de Albal y Tamborel. And growing up, she was motivated to study 
and like one article described her as like a her life being a little sheltered but honestly I think that that was just like me translating because it did use the word literally translated sheltered but it's noted that like her father was the engineer motivating her as well to study and again being like the first woman engineer yeah your life was probably a little sheltered in Mexico City where like no other females were studying the same thing in a sense. And in school, and for orienting ourselves on our timeline, it's 1913 to 1917. And her she had her like basic education is en la norma para maestras de la capital, which is the normal for teachers in the capital. That's like the crude translation. And then she was enrolled into a higher level math in another school, La Escuela de Altos Estudios, which is the school for higher education, essentially. And she was one of four women at that school. And this gets a little dicey because not only did she stand out for like being that sparkly fish in the pond, being one of four women, but she was able to tackle like difficult civil engineering courses, finishing them without failure. And moving forward a little bit to 1922, she attended Palacio de Mineral, which is the Palace of Mines or Mining, which is now a museum, actually. So it was first built as a space for the Royal School of Mines and Mining, of the, like the Royal Court there, and then changed to a school for engineering, mines, and physics. However, it's now a museum. Like I said, it kind of gets dicey around the 1913, 1917, where she is taking classes, and now we're a few years later in the 1921s, where she got into the school in the sense that she she was there listening to classes. However, not fully enrolled until 1926 because she didn't have the high school certificate yet. But again, she passed with flying covers because obviously, and she passed the engineering exam on February 11th, 1930. And quick side note, because if some of y'all are screaming at me saying that she was not the first woman to get a civil engineering degree in like Mexico, there is contention because around like 1930-ish before, because 1930-ish was when Concepcion Mendoza Ibal got her degree. So her being the first at 1930. There's another woman who apparently went to the engineering school before her, but from the end result of my snooping, there was no other registered woman at this school between 1792 and 1909. And then also no other like registered woman to have graduated. So at this point it's Concepcion because she graduated and she was the first one to graduate. She wrote down a lot through education and post-education and it's Memorias Practicas, which is practical memories. And literally what I'm thinking of practical memories is books and notes. Again, with my research, it's very much scattered of translating from what I deemed as the best resources coming from Mexico. Please give me more resources if you know this gal and know more. So practical memories, I'm guessing, are just like her books and notes. And they're still in the Palacio de Mineral or the Palace of Mines and Mining again, which is now a museum. So I thought that was like really cool how like her school like recognized that she was just like such a beautiful mind and like so great and talented that they kept all her stuff. I really want to see it. The Palace of Mines or Mining is not a great website, so I couldn't like 
go through their collections and actually see it, um, maybe one day I'll make it down to Mexico City. And in 1974, she received the Premio Ruf de Rivera, which is the Ruf Rivera Prize, which goes to the best woman in engineering and architecture, which I thought was like really cool because she like continued. She didn't go after school and like settle down. Like none of what I read was like her settling down with like a husband and kids. It was all like concretely what she did for engineering. So post her getting the prize and just also she died in 1985, just up to her death. She was still working. She wrote a lot. She was the author of like a 52 volume book. She just knew how to conceptualize or kind of put a lot of hard engineering concepts into writing and into paper, which is a really hard thing to do. And the fact that I, I like obviously couldn't see many of them I tried, maybe I was looking in the wrong places, but I just wanted to see if it was more for like the engineering mind or she wrote some things for us as non-engineers to read them. Kind of like what Hank Green does. Cause that's what interests me. I love when people take what they're like very, very good at, especially when it's like the hard science and dwindle it down for people not in that field. That's what we do. That's we're trying to make our do. knowledge more accessible. At least that's what I feel like we're doing. That's what we're trying that's what to I do. Hope. That's yeah, what we're that's trying what to do. That's why we interrupt each other to be like, hey. Yeah. What is that? Hey, explain more in depth that thing. That we all kind yeah. of understand. But yeah. just in case. So I'm going to start off my story here with a joke that you might know, you might have seen. And that joke is... What did Watson and Crick discover? Absolutely nothing. Rosalind Franklin's notes. Ha! Ha! <laughs> Gold. Thank you. It's not mine, but I really like that. Exquisite. Thank you. Uh, if I do a bad job, just like a heads up, if I do a bad job explaining the sciencey part of this, I'm sorry. Uh, Lexi doesn't speak Chinese. I don't speak science. That's just how it is. So Rosalind Franklin was born July 25th, 1920, a Leo, in London, England, to a prominent Jewish family. And I'm having an identity crisis because I think I was born into a prominent Jewish family. Anyway, I have to talk to my mom about that. <laughs> she attended St. Paul's School for Girls, which focused on women getting degrees other than their MRS. What's an MRS? Oh, I was waiting for a laugh at my joke and Lexi snapped, but I didn't get an audible laugh. MR, your MRS degree is Mrs. Degree, you know? Oh my God, I just got it. I thought I was like, yeah, actually. Wait, degree. I thought you were like playing dumb. You didn't, you've never heard that? I've you've never, never heard, heard MRS that. degree? No. Oh, it's I'm, my favorite thing. It's like why no. women in, like was it was this phenomenon of women in the 40s about? and 50s going to college. Yeah. Yeah, to no, meet their husband. men. Ring before the spring. I know that one. And I I've know never heard ring before the that. spring, but I have heard Mrs. Degree. MRS oh degree. God, so dumb. This I think they make that joke in Greece. Say letters at me. MRS degree. I, I was waiting for a laugh because I- Your master's I in being married to a man. Love the MRS. I love that joke. It's my favorite joke. I think it's so funny. We can dive into why I think that's so funny in therapy, but- I have more pressing issues in therapy. <laughs> so Rosalind was very good at math and science and also languages. Well, she left St. Paul's a year early to go to Newnham College, which was part of Cambridge University. It was one of only two 
all women colleges at Cambridge. Uh, she graduated in 1941. I'm going to summarize the rest of her academic work so that we can get to the good stuff. She earned her PhD in physical chemistry from Cambridge in 1945 after studying the microstructures of carbon and graphite at the British Coal Utilization Research Association, where she'd done research during World War II. Instead of going into the kind of war work that other women were doing during the war, she was doing war-oriented research on carbon and graphite, which was more what she was interested in doing the sciencey stuff and not like building weapons, which was another important part of women's work in World War II, but we're not talking about women in World War II, even though I have a lot of feelings about that. In 1947, she started working at a lab in Paris, the name of which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, where she learned how to analyze carbons with X-ray crystallography, which is sometimes called X-ray diffraction analysis. I'm sorry I can't explain more about what that is it's just what it's called you use x-rays to if take you tried to things. explain it i wouldn't understand the explanation but maybe maybe our listeners will understand and can help explain to me what x-ray crystallography slash diffraction is let us know right in a friend of hers charles colson suggested hey what if you did this but make it larger biological molecules so she took over a project at King's College in London from a scientist named John Randall using X-ray diffraction to take pictures of DNA molecules. This is where Rosalind crosses paths with Maurice Wilkins, who was the first villain of our story. He's not actually a villain. He's just kind of a chauvinist and annoying. I'm just being dramatic, as usual. Maurice Wilkins thought that our dear Rosalind was just a lab assistant when in actual fact she was conducting her own research. One of my sources was like, this is understandable, given the university's attitude towards women at the time. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. You suck. Period. Anyway, so the specific note that Watson and Crick discovered was a photograph called Photo 51. I can't find any copyright-free images of it, but if you go to our show notes, which will be at ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com, under further learning, there is a PBS website where you can learn more about the photo specifically and see it. The point is, it's a very clear photograph of a DNA molecule where you can kind of pretty clearly see the double helix structure, which is like a twisted ladder. It really was only a hop, skip, and a jump for people to figure out that using this photo, the structure of DNA was the double helix, which is like a twisted ladder, if you don't know. Maurice Wilkins showed this picture to James Watson and Francis Crick, who were also doing DNA research, without Rosalind's knowledge or permission. Frustration noises. I'm so angry about this. So Watson and Crick beat Rosalind Franklin to the punch, publishing their research, even though they were really publishing Rosalind's research. It's like if they were doing a 200-piece puzzle and Rosalind had put in 198 of the pieces, but then Watson and Crick came in and put down the last two and were like, look, we did a puzzle. Almost knocked my headphones out. I was so angry. <laughs> Oops. It's like when my mom makes dinner, but then my grandma takes it out of the oven and she tells my dad that she made dinner. Yeah, pretty much. Rosalind left King's College, I wonder why, for Birkbeck College, where she did some x-ray diffraction work with the tobacco mosaic virus, which as far as I can tell only infects plants, uh, as well as the polio virus specifically on their structure. Rosalind Franklin died of ovarian cancer in 1958 at the age of 37. Four years later, Watson and Crick were awarded the Nobel Prize, which Rosalind would not have been eligible for anyway, I guess, 
because they don't nominate or award posthumously, but still really annoying. Anyway, Rosalind Franklin, she's really cool. She deserved better. I love her very much. My girl. Even though I have no idea what she, like, I know what she did, but I don't understand how. You know, it's absurdly easy to nominate someone for a Nobel Prize. It is absurdly easy to nominate someone for a Nobel Prize. And the research was published before she died. So maybe just even be like, hey. It's it's even easier today. I mean, I can't speak for back then, but literally there's a form on a website you fill out. So like someone could have done it before she died. Like I said, they did not have the website back then. But if it's that easy today, sure it was like easier then too. So that's really annoying to me. They couldn't even be like, hey, you know, Rosalind Franklin actually took this picture. And that really helped us. Just like what happened with uh, my lady. Yeah. Pretty much. Her advisor could be like, actually, my grad student really did all the grunt work on this, you know? It's not like Rosalind was even a grad student, though. Like, she had a PhD and was doing this research. It's just women in science get real. All women in science, regardless of the situation. And this wasn't that long ago either. This wasn't that long ago. We're talking about the 20th century. We're talking about the 20th century. It's the 21st century. My grandfather was born in 1927 and he's still alive. And Rosalind was born The woman I talked about is younger than my grandmother. Yeah. They're all still here. There's still work we got to do on being more welcoming to people of non-male genders just in general. It's just work we have to do as human beings just all across the board. In science fields and ever, everywhere. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. week on lady history she will be the history we're talking about some modern gals and their impact on our lives really we'll be fangirling a lot i'm excited are you excited of course you are it's called tomorrow she'll be history if that inspires anything in that's your little brain. that's what i was gonna do i was just gonna repeat the title and see what else comes out of my mouth yes i love when i love when you like mouth mouth bomb word vom normal vom is mouth vom but mouth vom okay <laughs>